This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Hello and welcome to the Raptors Weekly Podcast. I'm Rose Sampson Folk, and today a very special guest, somebody who I missed on about a year ago. It just may be lazy preparation on my end, but Jackson Frank, who covers the NBA and the NBA draft for Dime Up Rocks, fan-sided, and is still covering some 76er stuff for Liberty Ballers, a fantastic writer, not only in what he provides in his written work, but also one of the most comprehensive Twitter follows you can go to if you're looking for breakdowns of games and stuff like that. Jackson, thank you very much for coming on, man. Yeah, of course. I had the I, I like totally forgot that we missed we missed paths last year. I, you know, I looked I saw our DMs and I just remembered that we we couldn't quite line it up during the playoffs last year, but I'm glad we we're able to connect connect this year during these these weird late summer playoff uh, situation going on. Yeah, I wonder just as a a query, do you think this will change how the NBA operates? going forward like do you think the season will now start in december forever and they'll start going into more of the baseball season rather than getting the end of the nfl season yeah i don't know i mean it's it's tough because like they're so far behind like you know there's rumors now that they're going to maybe start in march like december just doesn't seem like a feasible thing for any of these teams that are still here um Mm -hmm. so yeah i mean you you think maybe like i mean obviously because football is still the predominant sport in america you'd think it might be prudent to try and recalibrate the the NBA calendar, um, but yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. But I mean, it's it's just going to take so long for there to be any semblance of normalcy again in terms of like getting back and not just trying to adjust based off you know how how COVID nineteen and those precautions affect the NBA calendar. But I wouldn't be surprised if they try and maybe eat into more baseball and compete with with football because they're just not really ever going to beat out football for the most part. Yeah, and the point you make about COVID-19, pretty much everything is out the window at this point. Like, they can resume the season if they really want to throw money around and move things around. Obviously, with the bubble, they showed that they can. But as the term you use, prudent, if it is, if that's something good to do, the optics of doing that so shortly after the season finishes, trying to force things back, obviously not going to look very ideal, especially if America and adjacent countries are still kind of in shambles, especially those that house uh, NBA teams wouldn't be ideal. But you're here to talk the NBA Eastern Conference and the playoffs in which they play. And I'm going to lean on your expertise in this one because I think you have a very, very well comprehensive knowledge, I'll say, to use that term again, of the Eastern Conference, especially since you've, you've written about so many teams in it. But I want to start with the Heat and the Pacers. I think the Pacers were for the start of the bubble, kind of the darling of the bubble, because Sabonis got injured, well, was injured, and then opted out. Vic just coming back, and Oladipo still has that 
pop in his step that if he's on his game, you know, he starts creeping towards the top 15 spot in the league. And then TJ, who is now affectionately called MJ Warren, providing a crazy scoring punch and probably better defense than I think a lot of people suspected going into this year. A little bit lengthy, some heady rotations, stuff like that. But against the Heat, who also have the uber-likable Bam Adebayo and Jimmy Butler surrounded by some really, really good role players and specialists. What intrigues you most about that series just off the top? Yeah, I think the big thing I really want to see is kind of where Oladipo levels out. You know, he was really bad the first few games. He came back this year from that uh, knee injury. I believe it was, I can't remember, I think it was a quad injury specifically. Um, but really started to pick it up uh, late before the, the shutdown happened back in the back in the winter. Um, and then was pretty good in the bubble. Um, I didn't think he was as good, you know, as he was in 2017-18. But uh, the jumper was there. I think he shot above 40% from three in the bubble. Um, has some pretty nice start-stop moves, which is pretty key to his game. Um, he's so explosive and quick downhill um, that when he's got when he's got that jumper working, he's pretty hard to stop. He hasn't been quite as explosive getting to the rim um, as you'd like, um, you know, like he was when he, like his career year in 17-18. But I think that's the biggest thing for me is I want to see kind of how he performs. Um, there have been some rumors that maybe he's pretty unlikely to re-sign. In Indiana, he's been linked to the, the Heat, um, so it's always kind of funny when you get those rumors and then those teams end up playing. So Because obviously we've seen, and as you mentioned, that at his peak, he's a top 15, top 12 player. Um, and if he can continue to kind of distance himself from some of the, the hurdles that he faced early on in his recovery or you know his return to the court and look like that player, or just at least top 25 player, um, that's really interesting because Indiana really needs his perimeter creation. And if you add him to Miami, a team you know that's got Bam and Jimmy and uh, and Duncan Robinson and Tyler Hero. Um, that's a pretty interesting core moving forward. So just really curious to see how he how he plays um, and kind of what level he can reach as a, as a score and what he can do defensively, especially on the ball where he's generally pretty dang good. Well, I'm glad you bring up the jump shot because I think that is something where you can draw a line for Victor Oladipo where he started having way more success at the rim immediately once that pull-up game and pick-and-roll possession started ratcheting up for him. There's a, a huge correlation between this jumper and what he's able to do after getting downhill. But when we're talking about the Heat, I think you have to discuss the, the zone defense that they play. Do you think that the zone defense is advantageous or or not for the, for the Pacers when we're thinking about how they're going to attack it? For example, like TJ Warren is pretty good usually at finding gaps in the defense and hunting for his shots but if they're gonna stick him with jimmy butler does that mean they go away from a zone defense do you see anything particular in that matchup yeah i think that's a great point about the zone that's something that you know miami has really started to put one of the teams that really popularized along with toronto and brooklyn in the last couple of years um but yes yeah, like that's the thing that if they go to zone and you have sabonis there he can kind of pick you apart from the high post with his passing and his his mid-range jumper game um, but I mean, he looks like he's not a very small chance. I haven't read anything recently, but um, the reports initially always seem pretty gloomy with his potential return this year. So, yeah, I I would I would be pretty surprised if Indiana is able to you know find a lot of success in that zone, especially with that Sabonis, like I mentioned. Um, but I do think yeah, it's Warren might be a guy who you mentioned like he's really good in that mid range area. That's always kind of been his thing. Um, he was always good mid mid range score before he extended his range after three the last few years. Um, so you can maybe slot him there in the, in the high post, let him hopefully get him some good shots from the, the area he prefers. Um, but yeah, I think it's, you know, it's, 
it's a difficult, it's a really difficult situation for, for Indiana. Um, but if you've got Warren work in the mid range and, you know, maybe all depot can get some slashing going in the pockets of the defense with his speed, then maybe you found some success, but, um, yeah, I would be I would be surprised if that's you know that's not a thing we see Miami pull out a lot in this series and have a lot of have a decent amount of success with it. And what do you think about when we're looking at Miles Turner and Bam Adebayo? Do you think that'll be a straight across matchup, or do you think the Heat might slump back into Myers Leonard at the five, even though it does look like they've tried to maximize their starting lineup when they they go to Goran Dragic instead of none. Or they move Adebayo up to the five just to try and maximize the starting lineup. Do you think that's something we'll see in this upcoming series, or do you think we're more likely to see something like, you know, having Myers Leonard at the five, so it kind of changes fundamentally how those those front court matchups shape up? I think we could see some of that in in the bubble. Um, or not in the bubble. Excuse me. I guess we're everything's in the bubble, so that's just implied. But uh, I think we could see some, some of that in this series. Uh, you know, Indiana is a pretty undersized, uh, you know, front line. Miles Turner is a really, really good rim protector, but he's still pretty thin, and you can bait him into foul trouble at times. Uh, obviously, Bam's not the strongest guy, but he, he's fairly well built. And then they've been running uh, Jakar Sampson a lot at backup center. So, uh, yeah, I think, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw some Miami go back to some of that, that Bam, uh, myers Leonard front court, especially when I think cause Kendrick Nunn might still be uh, I don't know. Did he leave the bubble? I don't know if he's back still. Um, I, I, I can't recall exactly there, but he um, played the game against the Pacers, right? I think. Yeah, he had twenty-three, okay. four assists, three steals against yeah, the I, Pacers. I game, but I know. Yeah, I know he did leave at some point, so I guess they that was yeah. rectified or he stepped away. I don't know exactly what happened there, but yeah, I guess if he's back, I but I still, you know, it's that would be that would be me. Suggesting we'll see it even more, but I still think there's a chance we see it um, kind of that jumbo lineup and try and leverage some of the size advantage that they can that Miami can uh, lean on. Um, I mean, because yeah, Indiana's just so undersized, especially that's the bonus when you're playing six, eight, six, nine, Jakar Sampson at the back of five. Um, you saw what Joe Embiid did in that first that first game against the Pacers uh, when the bubble started a couple weeks ago. So um, yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see that. That jumbo, that jumbo front court, but I also think we'll get a lot of Bam at the five because I, I think Miami likes all of the options that it can have there, especially with the way Bam can handle the ball. And you've got guys like Drogic and Nunn and Hero and Butler. They're all guys that can run that DHO stuff. Duncan Robinson obviously has great synergy with with Bam. Uh, the numbers there have been great all year um, between those two. So I, I think we'll see mostly Bam at the five, but I don't think I wouldn't rule out Myers Leonard, you know, making a return to the, the rotation. Um, because it seems like he was kind of on the outskirts in the bubble um, for rotation mm-hmm. minutes. So, um, but yeah, I do really think Miami likes that that what they get from Bam with the five and all the different you know connections he can open up with their ball handlers. I'm gonna pause at something, and so when I think about the Heat, they remind me of the Lakers a little bit because they're so dependent on Adebayo and Butler for creating their offense, the same way that the Lakers are dependent on LeBron and AD. And so when I think about these two teams, I think it's those two guys operating on both teams, operating these maximalized roles as just basketball players in the most pure sense. They're doing pretty much everything a basketball player would do on the court. They set screens, they ball handle, they they're good passers, they defend, they can shoot a little bit. Obviously, Bam Adebayo and Jimmy Butler are more limited than the Lakers pair in that sense, but 
the Heat have constructed their roster. It seems like they ask a lot of those two, and they specialize the other positions. What do you think about that as far as their adaptability going into the playoffs and what that might create as far as difficulties? Or do you think that's a better type of way to create your roster when you're looking at matchups and stuff like that? Yeah, I think that's a, a very valid concern with Miami's kind of playoff ceiling. I just think they're a better team than Indiana, so I don't I don't worry too much in that and just kind of in this short term view. But I definitely think when they you know if they win this first round series and then they go and play Milwaukee, it'll be something that's a pretty significant issue um, because they just don't really have anyone with a lot of juice um, off the bounce. Obviously, none can do some stuff. Drogic still to an extent. He's obviously you know he's re- regressed a lot physically in the last few years. Um, you see that a lot reflected in his finishing numbers that have decreased. He used to be an incredible guard finisher. Um, so I think it's, you know, it's, it's let for me, I think it's the best way they can go about it with this roster. Um, but I do think that's kind of an inherent flaw of the roster is not having that really, really dynamic pull up guard that you put off the dribble shooter. Um, you know, Jimmy shoots a little bit off the dribble, but he's, his number, his numbers there are pretty anemic. Um, obviously he was really poor from three this year. Uh, but even like a team like the Bucks, who, you know, center team around Giannis, still Chris Middleton who can shoot off the dribble with the best of them among, among wings. So, um, I do think it's something that'll present some pretty significant issues in the second round if Miami reaches that, as I expect them to. But against Indiana, I don't think it'll be a huge issue because Indiana's in a similar light where they also lack a lot of off the dribble juice. Um, you know, Oladipo can do some stuff, as we mentioned, but um, still working his way back in tip-top shape. I wouldn't want to lean on him too heavily. They've really kind of put, in, put him in a supplementary role next to TJ Warren, um, who's more of a tough shot maker and hitting tough pull-ups rather than really creating a ton of advantages. Yeah, well, that's a good point. And certainly I phrased it poorly because I did mean for the second round. I, I'm a, I'm in the same boat as you, is that I think they'll probably handle the Pacers. I think it would be really, really interesting if Sabonis was healthy. I think that'd make for a super fun series and a lot of, you know, a lot of adjustments on both sides. But perhaps I'll move us over to a different series because I think asking for predictions maybe is a little bit fruitless anyway. So I want to talk about Raptors-Nets. We don't have to stick too long on this. I know it's a Raptors podcast, but I have a full Raptors-Nets preview coming later on. So we'll just do the the optics and we'll get into it. So initially, the Raptors, you look at a team that is not very good against the drop defense typically. It does create some problems for how they like to operate on offense. Obviously, Kyle Lowry is accomplished and can create against most types of defenses. But when we're looking at the other guys, like a Fred Van Vliet, Pascal Siakam, they don't operate very well against drop defenses. And this is something that well, uh, a friend of mine and a, a great writer, Joe Wolfond, wrote about is that the Nets, they love to give up the floater and they love to give up that, that area in the middle. And Jared Allen drops really deep. Do you think that'll surprise anybody with maybe some stagnated offense or do you think that the Nets defense even though stylistically and by scheme they should be good against the Raptors maybe we'll be looking at a team that just can't defend them how do you think that shakes out going forward yeah I think that's you know that's an interesting point you know Van Vliet he has significant issues finishing inside the arc um he's been a great three-point shooter the last few years but his two-point efficiency especially at the rim has never been particularly good um put it one way um so i think maybe you'll see a little bit of kind of feeling out period and maybe we'll have a maybe it'll be a 
55, 53, for, you know, first half or something in game one. But uh, I just don't think the Nets have enough enough talent um, to really limit this. You know, the Raptors, obviously the Raptors offense is definitely not their strong seat compared to their defense, which is, you know, one of the best in the league, among the two or three best defensive units in the league this year. Um, obviously last year they were great as well. But, uh, yeah, I think maybe it'll take a little bit of an adjustment, but there's just not enough talent on this Nets team, which seems really simplistic, but um, I think you can just you can turn to um, running stuff through Gasol, Siakam, um, especially when you know if you can find if you can steal some minutes when Jared Allen's on the bench and you get Gasol out there, um, you can do so much with him because the Nets are really undersized without DeAndre Jordan um, to back up Jared Allen. Um, you can really allow Gasol to create some advantage with his size and strength in the high post or just backing down and then use his playmaking ability to you know um, capitalize on those advantages. So. Yeah, I, I don't have too many worries. Yeah, like I said, maybe a bit, little bit of feeling out period, maybe just more growth and opportunities for Van Vliet, um, you know, to kind of further solidify his his you know maturation as a lead ball handler, secondary ball handler. But yeah, I just I just feel really see the Nets give Toronto too many options, just a large talent disparity, and there's not really a lot of person. You know, the Nets are a tough in a tough spot. They don't have the size to match up with you know, Toronto's pretty big glut of size inside. Well, you referred to Toronto as tall ball, the the opposition to small ball in one of your pieces I remember reading, and I thought that was great, first of all. But I think it is appropriate to bring up that Gasol, the corner offense, all of the split action sets that they like to run, pin down stuff they like to run, should be good enough to counter any type of defense that the Nets drop at them. But when we're looking at the Nets' go-to guy, and I wrote a top 100 list, it was it was like twenty five thousand words. It was very expansive, and Karis Levert, he, it was one of my hottest takes. I put him in the top forty. What do you think about Karis? And do you think it'll be a very tough series for him against the Raptors because they have even Fred Van Vliet, a guy with heavy hands, really tough to push around at his size. OG Ananobi, Pascal Siakam, even Rondé Hollis Jefferson, he was like a ninety fifth percentile one on one defender this year. What do you think that matchup looks like when we're looking at Karis LeVert versus the Raptors' bevy or stable of wing guards or wing defenders, I should say? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think this is a pretty tough matchup for Karis. You know, he is, he's, he plays just a weird style. It's kind of like herky jerky, uh, you know, just he can kind of bounce to his spots. He's so gangly and you know, he's got pretty solid. He's courage. amoebic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a, that's a succinct way to put it or apt way to put it. But, yeah, I think I would. I think he he is due for some pretty significant struggles. Obviously, he's been really good in the bubble. Uh, you saw him almost spoil uh, you know, Portland's Portland's chances to make the playoffs. It was it was hilarious watching that game on on Thursday. You know, as the balls in the air, you're like you're just watching the fate of one team season hang in the balance there. Um, but yeah, you know, he's been he was pretty good down the stretch of the you know before the, the season was paused, and then he was pretty dang good in the in the uh, in the bubble but yeah i think he's someone you can you can kind of push around and if you can limit him getting to the spots he likes to get he's gonna have some struggles because he's not a huge three-point shooter you know he, that's been kind of a weak point in his game he's not a very willing three-point shooter i think his his career three-point rate hovers below 30 percent or something like that um, so i i would be pretty shocked if he does anything significant. maybe i'll have a big game or two if he's getting hot from mid-range but um he just has never really been super efficient in his career. And I think it's because he likes to shoot from inefficient spots on the floor. And you combine that with, like you mentioned, the going against a really, really good defensive backcourt or perimeter defense, 
unit um, in the Raptors, you're going to have some pretty significant issues. But um, yeah, I, I would like to see him get some. I'd like to see uh, Rondé Hollis Jefferson get some minutes against Levert because he has really been a, a pretty pretty impressive defender this year, which has always been the calling card of his game. But um, I was pretty impressed with the way he was able, you know, get consistent minutes on this this good team with his defense. Maybe most importantly, are we going to get a Jamal Crawford 18-point game that's followed by a slew of tweets about how he isn't actually washed, how he, how the whole league forgot about him? Basically what happened with Melo, except Melo actually kind of made good on it, although his defense is still in a spot. But Melo, obviously, his shot-making has been super welcome in Portland. But are, are we going to see a, a bevy of posts that come from Bleacher Report, Slam, all those types of places when, uh, when Jamal Crawford has a, let's say, 14-point first half like we know he will? Well, I don't even think he has to be 14 points. You just, to, you just have to shake someone, right, and get open for a mid-range. Yeah. Right That's <laughs> the, run with, the run with the five different camera angles we get from that play alone. Um, but I don't like, he's only played six minutes in the entire bubble. Like, I don't know if we're going to, like, get anything for him. Like, maybe, maybe, the, maybe the Raptors have a huge first half. Lowry hits five threes, and they're up by... 34 maybe through the third and we get we get both teams emptying their bench for the fourth and you know Jamal Jamal Crawford does some fun stuff in a blowout game but like I don't I don't doesn't seem like you know Brooklyn really wants to play him they I mean Brooklyn was pretty feisty in a lot of their games and they went they went five and three in the bubble with a ragtag roster and um so I you know I would be surprised if we get much Jamal Crawford um I know he had a, a nice short sequence against Milwaukee that um you know when the, when the Nets won a couple weeks ago a week and a half ago but it doesn't seem like, based off the rotation patterns we saw from uh, Brooklyn in the bubble, that we're going to get many opportunities for, um, you know, Jay crossover minutes. Uh, you know, fortunately or unfortunately, however you however you view him as a, a listener or fan of his. A okay. So then, just before we leave this topic, if he was going to shake somebody on the Raptors, who's getting caught in the highlight? Oh man. So I don't, I don't think it's, I don't think it's Lowry. I don't think it's Van Fleet. I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's Terrence Davis or something. Maybe he, you get the rookie on an island or something, and he, he yeah. leans too far into the the pick or something, and you know, Jamal Crawford rejects it, and he's open for the 14th footer on the right elbow. That's maybe a pick, but <laughs> even Terrence Davis has been kind of in out, in out of the rotation, if I recall. Right, he's been kind of up and down with his minutes as of re, as of recently. So. Um, maybe it's maybe it's Matt Thomas. I don't want to pick on the white shooter, but um, we could I could see one of those things late in the fourth quarter of a blowout game where you know both teams have entered their bench, like I said, and Jamal gets his gets his time to shine. It's against the Raptors' fifth guard or whatever. Yeah, the Terrence Davis ever since his mask drama, his his game has been up and down. I don't know if there's a correlation there, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, I don't know what's happening with him. Just not. He, he was He's kind not of forming up a little bit before the break, right? Like his minutes were kind of down a little bit before, before the season went on on pause, if I recall. Well, I think they they were going to be, but then Patrick McCaw got injured, so he kind of got bumped back into that spot. If I remember correctly, I mean, it has been a long time now it's, since yeah, it's been five <laughs> since basketball. Pre, but pre uh, yeah, there's been a little bit less transition for the Raptors, and he does he hasn't been forming up off of drives as crisply as he as he usually did and just not riding that super super hot shot from downtown and still i think nurse maybe doesn't like the gambling on defense 
like really doesn't like the gambling on defense, so he's has a short leash with that. But they've been they've been running Matt Thomas as a ball handler, mm-hmm. Stanley Johnson as a ball handler on occasion. Pretty low yield stuff because I don't know how worried they are about the eighth man like in their rotation, but obviously they're trying different things out because Nurse doesn't expect Davis to be a consistent playoff performer. It seems that way, but like like you said at the top, there is a talent disparity here, especially with the Nets injuries. So we can probably just say Raptors should take this one home and we can move on to another simplistic series, but one we can kind of get a little bit granular on because it involves a player you wrote extensively about, and that's Eric Bledsoe. So I have a big question teed up for you here. So give me a moment, and I'll read it off the page because I don't have it memorized. (laughs) (laughs) No worries. Okay, so Bledsoe's value to the Bucks is resolute, as you made clear in your piece about him for fan-sided, wherein you highlighted his pedigree as a point-of-attack defender and his penchant for punching gaps and getting to the bucket on offense. You even suggest a more prolific cutting game could loosen up, loosen him up come playoff time and posited that this might be the year he rises above his recent playoff difficulties. My question is, what teams do you think are going to press him in that way? Because I don't think it's going to be Orlando. So this is kind of a cop out for previewing the series. But I think Bledsoe is one of the keys for this long run when we're talking about the Bucks, So what do you think about that? Who's going to push him? And then we'll see if he's going to rise above what has given him difficulties. And we'll see if he's if he's going to take that regular season performance and translate it to the postseason. Yeah, I think the obvious one is, is Toronto, like to begin with. Uh, Toronto is the biggest threat to Milwaukee coming out of the East, in my opinion. They did it last year, sagging off of him a ton, off- led so a ton offensively, and he struggled. Um, I think Miami's another one. Um, I think Spolstra is a really good coach, and he's going to try to maximize any deficiencies on either end. And one of them would be letting Bledsoe shoot those spots and trying to muck up Giannis drives like we saw last year with, with Toronto. Um, so those would be the two big ones that come to mind. Um, you know, it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough thing to to balance because Bledsoe's such a great finisher, and there are so many good floor spacers that you don't want to just give this, you know, this explosive guard all the room to just attack off of a honest drive or face up, whatever it is. But um, I think those would be kind of the two that come to mind. You know, I think you know, Spolstra and Nurse have a claim to the two best coaches in the East outside of Budenholzer. Um, not necessarily better than Budenholzer, but you, know, you can't you can't say that uh, one is better than the other. I think, in my opinion, and if you're looking at the best coaches in the East against the Bucks, you can't include the Bucks head coach. So um, I think those would be the two that come to mind, and then. I wouldn't be surprised if we saw it in the finals if Milwaukee gets there, but Spolster um, and Nurse are two top five coaches that I think are going to try and exploit some of his Bledsoe's deficiencies as a spot-up shooter. When we're talking about the cutting, just because you had that clip of him cutting, so obviously you watched a lot of film on it. I think it was five out of six cuts that were on the tape were from the 45 extended and if you're looking at the basket, it'd be on the left side of the floor and he had one baseline cut from the left side of the floor. Is that just how they, like, is he more opportunistic in some places? Or is it just about who's collapsing the defense on the other side? Or did you notice any correlation between how he was picking his spots? Was it because of a spot on the floor? Was it was it more about who had the ball in their hands? Like, what are we looking at here? I think, so those, I, I didn't see it very often in the full games I watched. I, it was more one of those things where I noticed it would be potentially a wrinkle to 
increases offensive value in these key playoff situations. So I just found his, um, you know, I found all his cuts on NBA.com, whatever that, you know, all of his cuts that ended in a basket um, because NBA.com is to steal a word comprehensive with its, it's shot making data or, you know, the way it labels things, but yeah, mostly they like to station blood so lot on those wings next to Giannis because if that defender cheats over, you can just swing the ball. And then this incredible guard athlete has all this room to, or has the room he needs to get to the rim and, you know, either wrap around pass to someone for a layup or a kickout pass for a three. Um, but it, it's not a very big part of Bledsoe's game. You know, Milwaukee likes to kind of emphasize, just keep everything around Giannis. And when the defense collapse, he'll make the proper read to capitalize on it. We have the we have the secondary offensive players to benefit to make use of it as well. Um, but it is generally kind of from those wings, like you mentioned, um, when teams collapse on, you know, or they ignore blood. So he's he's pretty he's pretty heady. But I think for the most part, he's just following orders and staying behind the arc, to not not clog the lane too often. And so when we're looking at last year, Brogdon, I thought in the series last year, Brogdon was the best player, or sorry, second best player against the Raptors. I thought he actually had a better series than Middleton. And Bledsoe, obviously, as you said, had a lot of trouble. This year, no Brogdon, but George Hill has been great, you know, close to a six-man-of-the-year candidate, and for some people was a six-man-of-the-year candidate. And when we're looking at how the Bucks break things down, and as you, you went to great lengths to highlight just how great he is chasing off of the pick-and-roll, denying the screen in the pick-and-roll defensively, and how good he is on transition in offense, and just that even though he's not a really high percentile, he's operating in these optimized um, play types. All really important stuff, all really good stuff. But if he does have the same trouble as last year, do you think there's a possibility that George Hill starts to eat up more and more of his minutes? Or do you think at this point... Bledsoe is way too big a pillar in their defense, especially like I know Wesley Matthews and uh, Dante DiVincenzo are all pretty great chasing over the top, but Bledsoe is that dude. Like, what do you think happens with that if he does struggle again? Yeah, it's it's tough because it's it's interesting. I was talking with someone the other day about it's like usually you have you know you have this rising star in Giannis or Gary Fred Egypt, so you have time, but like the Bucks roster is pretty pretty veteran and weathered around him. So you don't have a lot of time to, with this current iteration to, to mess around and kind of let people find time. Like a, a second year under Bud and uh, Bledsoe struggles, you're looking at, you know, kind of have to get going. So I, I would, I don't, I mean, is, is Hill under contract next year? I don't recall exactly what he signed. Was it two years, one year? Um, I can double check. But I don't I know, actually. I should check. I know he signed, it might have been a one-year deal this offseason. Um but hypothetically, yeah, I mean, I think your your general point. Uh, no, sorry, he's trying a three year deal, almost, almost for three million. Yeah, through twenty one, twenty two. Yeah, so yeah, well, so he's got ten. He's got ten million. Yeah, wow. Yeah, he did. He did Good well for him. Then. Yeah. Um. But yeah, the general point is, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if we see him. He'll cut in some minutes. They just, you know, he's such a great three point shooter. Um, shot what like forty something percent this year, um, on three. Yeah, forty six. Yeah, not huge volume. <laughs> forty six. Yeah, but still, I mean, yeah. he's been good throughout his career from there. So I wouldn't be surprised, but it's a really tough balance because Hill just doesn't have the same level of downhill slashing, which is pretty key to, you know, Bledsoe's kind of their second best advantage creator. You know, Middleton is their second best scorer, um, but he doesn't really, you know, he doesn't, he just shoots over the top of guys because he's so good at that. He doesn't really um, blow by guys. So the tough balance, but I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, we're two games in the Eastern Conference Finals and, Bledsoe's 2 of 14 from the field, and then all of a sudden he's splitting minutes with Hill rather than it being like a, 
60-40 or 75-25 split or whatever it was during the regular season this year. Yeah. Okay, so we'll we'll zoom back to the first round. And so I know Aaron Gordon is a good defender, although he's he's not a super interesting player to me. And so I kind of will skim over him and how he'll, he'll impact the Giannis matchup. I think the most interesting matchup for me is anything that includes Fultz, of course, because I love him. But also, I really like Vucevic versus Lopez. How do you think that shakes out? Like, they're obviously going to try and space against each other a little bit, maybe Lopez more than Vucevic, but that Magic offense really relies on Vucevic being one of the few volume scorers at the big position. How do you think that shakes out? Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised, um, you know, maybe if we get a little bit of a wrinkle where Milwaukee goes to Giannis on Vuce a little bit um, at times because they don't really like taking uh, Lopez out of the paint. And that's not, you know, his mobility is not a strength of his defensively. And so if they're running some pick and pop stuff with Fournier and, and Fultz with a Vooch as the big man, I wouldn't be surprised if we see Giannis more as the, the defender in those actions. Um, maybe they're pre-switching or stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, when Vooch is running from the high post, he's posting up. That's a fascinating um, matchup because those, like, it's two giant center, centers. But uh, I would have to give the, the edge to lopez there he was so so good defensive this year such strong as an ox inside just really well built and sturdy um i think milwaukee is such good team defenders that a lot of that kind of like that swirling and cutting off ball motion that you know orlando likes to run around vooch and leverage his his abilities will be quelled to a degree and i don't th- and while vooch is a pretty good scorer i don't think he's good enough that he that you just say okay go one-on-one they're going to sell it to stop her off ball motion and limit your playmaking like you go and score 34 a night you know that's not not who he is, and I think Milwaukee has the kind of the personnel to throw at him to, to give him some issues there for sure. And so to just to make me happy, we're going to swing it into a little bit of Fultz conversation. I thought that it was so interesting when he and Lonzo were drafted that the top two draft picks weren't these super flashy players. I thought that they were both really impressive defensively, both read the game, I thought at a really high level. And especially with Fultz's injury, they both had to make a lot of plays that typically are highlighted by role players to kind of stick and make their impact on the court known. Now we look at Fultz with Orlando, and he's, you know, the shot making isn't quite there, but he's pretty smooth in the pick and roll. He's he's herky-jerky, kind of like Levert. His change of speed is great. He's a long finisher at the rim. He's strong. He has a lot of size. Do you see a future all-star candidate in there at all. What, are, what do you see as the shortcomings besides the jump shot? Is there anything that we're looking at with Markel Fultz that could turn him into something special? Or are we looking at some guy who's going to have to go uphill the rest of his career? Yeah, I would be surprised if we ever see an all-star level guy in there, unfortunately. But he has made pretty tremendous strides with his jumper and his confidence in general since he got to Orlando. Um, I just think a lower pressure situation has, has been good for him. I think Philly trying to be, compete for a title was just a lot to ask of him, especially with what he was navigating through um, on and off the court, whatever whatever it was, whatever it is. Um, and I think the second biggest issue really is he still kind of has an aversion to contact at the rim. Um, he is a really he is a very good finisher for a guard, but you see a lot of these acrobatic and athletic finishes with either hand because he doesn't really like to get hit. Um, you know, his free throw rate this year was. Uh, just over 20%. It's just over 20% for his career. So 
I think that's the kind of the next biggest thing. Like he doubled his three point rate this year. He went from nine uh, percent to almost eighteen percent, and obviously not. It's still it's still only shot twenty seven percent from there. But um, you know that type of leap leap in trust in your jumper is key. Um, you, know, you don't want to say he's only twenty. He's only twenty two still, but it's true. Like he's still young. Like that. I think the jumper could come back to a reasonable level, but to really become an, an awesome, awesome offensive player, he's got to. He's got to be more willing to just take the hard hit, go to the line, rather than try for all these acrobatic finishes um, that he seems prone to, even though he's a pretty dang good guard finisher. Yeah, I think that's why Trey Young, Trey Young, the most impressive part of his game is either the driving or the passing to me, and not the shooting. The shooting is good and fun and definitely creates a lot of highlights, but he, man, he'll just go smash into people at the rim. Kyle Lowry, too. I like when little guards are just willing to cannonball around in the lane and get to the line. Jimmy Butler, oh my God, that dude. <laughs> his free throw rate. I think, did you tweet something about his free throw rate? Yeah, it's, um, I think it's just below 70%. So he's, he's um, for, for any listeners who aren't quite aware, what, when we say rate, it just means for every one, every one shot he's taking, he's taking 0.7 free throws. I think it's basically where he's at this year. And it was, ab- it was above 70% at one time this year. I think it's just below it that now, but, um, yeah, he's it's like one of the best seasons ever from a guard. Um, the only like, you know, basketball reference went they went to subscription model, but I was messing around with the filters before they did that early in the year. And like the only guys that are matched Jimmy's free throw rate for like high usage players are like the, the Shacks and the Dwights and the Wilts and stuff. Or I don't know if it's Wilt, but maybe Hakeem, uh, something like that. So, yeah, it's it's very much a kind of a standalone season among perimeter type players. What do you what do you think of the gamesmanship of that? So I know, like, for example, a lot of people, the let's say the timeline, the Twitter timeline during a Raptors game, the opposing team, you might see a lot of aggrieved parties talking about uh, a flopping style on on Lowry's part. And also when they when Butler plays on the heat, Harden, for example, what do you think about the gamesmanship of the of the NBA, like the guys who hunt the free throws. And do you think that's good for the league? Because I love Harden. I love Butler. I love Lowry. I think they're all underrated at this point. And the gamesmanship doesn't bother me very much at all. In fact, I think, you know, it's just they they looked for advantages and found them. But what do you think about that in the game and just being able to kind of you work your way to the line, even if it doesn't look exactly like basketball sometimes? Yeah, I don't mind it at all. I've long been a, a staunch Harden defender. Um, like I think, I think one of the things that you know maybe there's a disconnect between between people like you and I who appreciate that part of the game and people who don't necessarily like it. And this is an indictment on the people. I just think it's less viewed as a, as a skill. Whereas, like I don't, I don't know how you feel, but I view, I view the ability to get to the line and kind of grift your way into these shots and totally use these tricks and whatnot as a skill. Like it's not necessarily an athletic thing. It's not. It's not shooting. It's not dribbling. But yeah, I don't mind it at all. I think it's very much a skill and it's a necessary thing. You see a lot of high usage players with low free throw rates. Again, you kind of parlayed this from the full discussion, but being able to draw fouls and you know get two free shots at the rim where no one can stop you, like when you break it down like that, it's a really valuable skill. Um, you know, obviously, Harden and Lowry are two guys who you know definitely take it to the edge of you know what exactly is considered you know people would consider basketball. But um, at the end of the day, like it's not they're doing with what's within the rules they're forcing the refs hands if the league wants to change rules and that's that's on the league it's not on these guys to change their play style um so i really appreciate that i think it's it's been remarkable to see jimmy you know just you know go 
okay, I can't really shoot anymore. Like I shot 24% on threes this year. I'm just going to become a giant free throw, mag- free throw rate magnet, free throw magnet, and uh, you know just get to the rim and, and live there well. Um, so yeah, I really, I really enjoyed it. It's been kind of a really fascinating year for for him individually, and then um, on a grander scale, yeah, I, I appreciate guys who were able to kind of master the the dark arts of free throw baiting or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I think it's, I can hardly, I don't think I can place anybody in my mind that can draw a lot of fouls at the guard position, but doesn't have a really impressive floor game. Because as you said, I, I do view it as a skill as well. And it's all about feeling where the defense is around you and always having a sense of where guys are, because that's, that's all it is about is feeling when your defender is out of control and you know you're in control, and you can draw that foul, and you can make things happen from that point. And is there are there any ball handlers who are really good at drawing fouls that don't have a good floor game? Because I it is just it seems like it's floor game to me. Yeah, I know. I'm trying to I'm trying to think like about. I mean, you could consider Giannis a a ball handler. He's not. He really can't shoot, but he's like six eleven with a seven plus wingspan. Like staying in front of him is pretty much impossible. He's already pretty much working at an advantage when he dribbles the ball inside the free throw line. So um, there are a lot of big free throw rate guys that, you know, I don't think really um, have that command of, of the game. Um, a guy who's really... AD, but he's like, uh, he's a big. Yeah. And same with Giannis, too, to a yeah, certain Embiid's, degree. Yeah, Embiid's a, a huge free throw magnet. Yeah. He's a big though, too. Um, but yeah, there's not really anyone who really comes to mind off the top of my head there. Um, but a guy who's really improved at it, which is kind of mirroring his overall evolution is Booker. Um, Devin Booker's gotten a lot better, a lot craftier with what that type of stuff the last few years, drawn fouls. But yeah, it's I think a, a high foul rate is a signifier of you consistently creating advantage offensively, and that's that's what you want your lead ball handlers to do, and so that's what they're doing. Yeah, that was when I was doing my top 100. I I think there are five Phoenix Suns on it, and watching film on every single one of them, I thought, oh wow, this team is a lot better than the analytics had said to that point because they weren't they didn't have an impressive statistic resume but I thought that each player was really good and so it was nice to see that come together in the bubble and highlighted most by as you say Booker who was fantastic in the bubble of course and but the reads he's making from that combo guard position have gotten so good when it comes to playmaking floor game foul baiting and just his sense of when he can get his shot off is it's at a really, really high level right now. So I'm excited to see that team next year or whenever the next season comes. And man, they're fun to watch. But you did mention Embiid, so I'll swing us into the last series we're going to talk about. And the first part of that series, I'll draw back to another article you wrote, which was about Tatum. And it touched on his pull-up game, which is super incredible, but also his defense and how he is a guy who doesn't have a... Well, he's not particularly potent as a a turnover creator like some big-time defenders are when you think of like a Chris Dunn, Marcus Smart, guys like that who can create a lot of deflections and do that kind of stuff. But you did highlight that he is a great team defender and he stunts a lot and that he can sway people away from where they want to go. So when we think of like a really impressive wing defender like OG Ananobi, who a lot of games this year has a couple plays where he has these huge booming highlights as a help side defender, that's not Tatum, but Tatum affects driving lanes in a similar way to OG. It's just about how he's reading the game. 
How important is he to Boston's defense, and how important will he be in this series against the 76ers? Yeah, I think he is He is kind of the, the crux of, of the defense. You know, Marcus Smart deservedly gets a lot of shine there as well. Oh, I know Celtics fans have been clamoring for a few years now for him to win Defensive Player of the Year, um, which I don't think is going to happen, but he's going to continue to get his due as an all-NBA defender type. Um, but I think Tate is the most important guy there. The, the way, you know, when I wrote that piece, my goodness, seven months ago now, it doesn't feel that long ago, but it also does. Um, he's, he's so good at that nail position as a, as a stunt and recover guy because he can deter so many drives. And then if you, if you have to stop that drive and then your secondary decision is to throw the, throw a pass or make a play around Tatum, he's probably going to stop that action too. So, um, that's the most important thing. You know, I think deterrence is really what's key defensively. And that can be tough to analyze because it's a subtle thing that happens. You know, when a guy drives into the lane and sees Rudy Gobert and then just dribbles out, you may interpret that as natural, natural flow of possession, but that's, that's Gobert, you know, with his presence protecting the rim there. So it's kind of similar with Tatum when a guy drives left and Tatum's on the, on the wing there and they back it out because they don't want to test him. Um, and that's deterrence. So yeah, he's really key there. Um, and, yeah, like you mentioned, he's not—he's not one of the best playmakers, but um, he is a pretty—he's a pretty good one. I think his steal rate was solid this year, averaged close to a steal and a half a game this year, as well. Um, pretty good in the flexions, nothing stand out. But um, yeah, when you mix when you mix the deterrence with with the solid playmaking, it makes him a really really key defender because he's so long and so mobile. Um, I guess I shouldn't say he's super long. I don't think his wingspan is anything incredible. But you you mix his again using that kind of term mix, but it's it's the mobility, it's the functional length and the reaction time. Um, he's a really 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 good roamer and playmaker, um, and just deterrent I guess uh, as a wing defender off the ball. Yeah, well, when you take the right steps, your arms seem about a foot longer than they are, and it seems like he's always taking the right steps defensively. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, for sure. Like when I was. Uh, watching film for that, it's like I you could have convinced me his wingspan seven two seven three. You look it up, it's six eleven seven foot. But because he's so quick with reaction times and can cover so much ground, it looks a lot longer than it is. So on the offensive end, the I think the seventy sixers defense should still be good. I just Embiid is so man, he is such a difference maker in the playoffs like that. As a guy who covers the Raptors, that series against the Raptors fundamentally changed how I viewed Embiid. I was still a huge fan beforehand, but just the world-ending presence he had on the floor was was insane. And so I wonder, for example, Jalen Brown, who I love, who I think is a great player, what does his off-the-dribble game have to do with this series and navigating Embiid, who should be lying in wait at the rim, for example? Because I know that Tatum... You know, there, there are some difficulties he had against the Bucks, and just the way they chase him down into the middle. Is Brown going to be important if the 76ers trying to adopt a similar strategy? Because it feels like the Celtics are at their best when Brown's off the dribble game is popping. Yeah, I, I think what's going to be key is, you know, I, I would be really shocked if Philadelphia is able to emulate what Milwaukee does. Um, because the key, you know, there, you know, there's so many different keys you could say for why Milwaukee has a great defense and why it's so effective against Tatum. But it starts with their all those different guards that are able to fight over screens. And um, you know, Josh Richardson's pretty good at fighting over screens, but they don't. You know, Philadelphia doesn't really have anyone else who's, I guess, Thibault's pretty good there. But 
they don't have really anyone else who's super adept and incredible getting over screens there. Um, so I think I think the way to really leverage G, uh, you know, Jalen Brown off the, off the dribble is when you get these kind of ball reverse situations and he's able to attack off the catch and be a play finisher more than a play creator. Um, so if you can kind of pull and be in all these different directions trying to stop, you know, maybe the ball starts in one corner and he's focused on maybe attacking a closeout from there and he's trying to rotate, um, move up the left block, and all of a sudden the ball's in the right, you know, swinging around to the right side and, some, and Jalen Brown's attacking to the, the right block. Um, I think that's really going to be the key is if, if Brent, you know, like if you're trying to leverage Brown the best, it's these off the tack, off the clut, my goodness, off the catch, excuse me, situations um, where maybe you've, you've pulled him beat in a lot of different directions and he's a, he's a beat late and, and, and Brown is able to finish at the rim. But I still think Tatum's kind of the key for them, even in this series. Um, I think he's going to have a really big series. There's just not really that wing defender, you know, to guard him with, with Simmons injured. Um, I expect him to have a pretty dang awesome series and that will probably be the reason that, you know, Boston wins uh, comfortably. I don't want, I know we're not doing predictions, but um, I think Boston is, has to be the overwhelming favorite in this series because of you know, no one really capable of stopping Tatum. Um, the two best perimeter defenders that Philadelphia has available are Josh Richardson and T. Stiebel, and they're just more of guard-oriented defenders than to be able to stop these big wing defenders like a six-nine or whatever six-eight and a half Jason Tatum who can rise over the top and, and bomb pull-up threes. I think I've come to the point where I view Ben Simmons as a top-five defender in the league. As somebody who watches a lot of Philadelphia, do you think that's correct or incorrect? That would be that would be a little rich for me. I'd probably have him in that like eight to twelve at fourteen range. Um, I still think he has a lot to clean up off the ball defensively. Um, part of the reason TJ Warren played so well in that first game um, a couple weeks back, but it was because Simmons just was a little was a little late in a lot of off ball movements, navigating screens at times. Some of it and a lot of it was also just Warren hitting incredible shots, but. Um, Simmons is just still needs to clean up a lot off the ball. Um, just the motor doesn't run quite as hot as when you see it at its peak. Like he, even though Kawhi was awesome last year, you know Simmons forced him in a lot of tough shots because he was locked in defensively on the ball and um, using his strength and quickness. And I don't think we've quite seen that translate um, off the ball defensively. So I would be skeptical of putting him in the top five yet. You know I'd still have Embiid, Gobert, uh, AD, Giannis for sure. Probably Brook Lopez. Um, ahead of him, but in that 8-12 to 12 range, I think among the best wing defenders, he's definitely there. Um, it's just tough when he's not a super, you know, the, what makes Giannis so great is he can function between both the perimeter and be an awesome rim protector, and Simmons is more of a really, 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 really good wing defender, but isn't someone who protects the rim um, because of a lack of great length and somewhat of an aversion to contact, even though he's improved there on defensively uh, this year. So um, a little rich for me, but I understand why um, to believe that he is that good because he was really good this year when he was on the floor. Yeah, I I had been watching. I wrote this piece about Pascal Siakam where I watched all of his possessions against Adebayo and Giannis and Simmons and Isaac. And Simmons was by far the laziest defender that he faced, but he was still like his reads were pretty impressive, I thought. So he was able to recover on a lot of stuff. But just when he was getting screened, he was <laughs> like he didn't seem that. Yeah, screen navigation or screen effort, fighting around screens, whatever, has long been an issue with Simmons, and I don't think that was something that really improved this year. Um, I wrote back in December, um, early December, kind of about the growth he had made defensively. And I think I still remember one of the lines was like, "Screen navigation remains a, a flaw of his, and that's something that still still is an issue." But he's really good. 
Um, but yeah, touching on Siakam, you know, and tying into the Sixers, it's you mentioned how, how game changing Embiid is defensively. It kind of seemed like when Brett Brown switched after game one to putting uh, Embiid on Siakam, that kind of like shaped Siakam's offseason plan offensively. You know, he shot way more above the break threes, you know, developed a little more of a flutter game in between game um, because of, you know, Embiid, he just couldn't do anything against Embiid at the rim. So um, it was really impressive what Embiid did, but it, it's probably even more impressive the way Siakam kind of transformed his game one offseason to counter the, the issues he had last year. Yeah, Siakam is kind of a, a marvel, a kinetic savant in the way that he's able to pick things up really quickly. And yeah, it's if you if I was guarded by Joel Embiid that well and it completely took away, like, for example, Siakam last year, a much better finisher at the rim than this year. And talk about a guy who needs to get a better um, for game and feel for drawing fouls. Siakam is also one of those guys who needs to add that to his game. But it was basically like the bucket was a magnet and he was throwing metal last year. It felt like everything near the rim went in. Like he had crazy bank shots for the whole year. But Embiid didn't even allow for that. So it was just kind of like it created the impetus for, okay, I really, really need to shoot the basketball. And yeah, it, it was obviously very big in his mind. But to keep it on Embiid, Daniel Tice, who I thought had a very good year and was very impressive for Boston, has a very difficult, I would say, matchup ahead of him. How do you think that shapes up, and what do you think they do with supplementing Robert Williams and his cancer? Like, what do you think happens with that matchup and trying to handle Embiid for Boston? Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I think the last couple of games, if I recall, of the Celtics seeding contests, uh, Cantor didn't get many minutes, but Cantor has actually fared decently well defending Embiid for a few years now in the post. Like, he's... He's awful in pick and rolls. He's awful in a lot of situations, but he's like a, a solid post defender. Like, that's where Embiid makes his money. So um, I wouldn't be surprised if we see Cantor get a decent amount of minutes. And because Philly doesn't necessarily have a lot of pick person, personnel to run pick and rolls, um, it probably won't be exploited. They they improved their, they increased their volume with pick and rolls with, with guys like Sheik Milton and Alec Burks in the bubble games. But, um, you know, Embiid post-ups are still going to be their bread and butter. So I think, you know, if, if there's any chance of Boston limiting limiting that part of uh, his game, it's probably going to be through Cantor. Maybe they choose, maybe they just say, you know what, Embiid's going to average 36 and, and 14, and we're going to sell to stop everyone else because we have more talent, healthy talent available. Um, but I think if the goal is to really shut down Embiid in the post, I wouldn't be surprised to see Cantor get a lot of minutes. Uh, because as good as Tice is, it's just not really as strong. He's a little undersized for a center, and doesn't have the length to, to really have the strength to match up with Embiid. So it could be one of those things where it's like a five-game series, and it's it's like the hardest five-game series of Daniel Tice's life. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of my favorite things is that for some reason, right, is the guys who are terrible on the perimeter, let's think, for example, Cantor or Harden, they just find their home guarding in the post. And I love that they'll get those little redemption possessions. For example, there was that that Harden where he was guarding Embiid and he got the, well, a somewhat of a strip on Embiid before he threw it up at the rim and just looking kind of go like, hell yeah, dude, you have one thing in your defensive resume and like you're super good at it. So I really like when players can kind of lean back on their post defense and they're just these big brutish guys. But one more question for you regarding these two teams. I really liked Josh Richardson last year. What happened, man? He's he's had a tough year for Philly. Yeah, I think it's kind of a a flurry of, of issues. One is 
Philly's using him too much, like Jimmy Butler last year. A lot of on-ball creation. I mean, I know he did a decent amount of that last year with Miami, but um, he's just not the decision-maker that uh, Philly needs there. You know, he loves to settle for kind of these mid-range pull-ups, or these tough floaters. Um, he has a little bit of a slow release on threes, too, and so he's not quite the guy who feels comfortable just bombing from deep as much as you'd like. Um, so that's kind of the biggest issue, yeah, I think would say misappropriate or mis, misguided role on Philly's end and then his decision-making issues in terms of shot selection, shot profile have been the biggest issues. But it does seem like to an extent metrics have kind of undersold in this year. I do think his defense is still been pretty dang good. Uh, I thought it was very good in the bubble games. But, um, yeah, most of it offensively is just being in a role that's uh, ill-fitting for his capabilities and also you know, amplifies his, his decision-making shortcomings. Okay, so, and then one last thing, I guess, because I haven't seen much of it, but I thought that he was impressive as a dribble handoff guy when he was with the Heat. Where does his, like, where does the DHO stuff stand with Embiid, them them as a two-man unit when they run that stuff? Like, obviously, it's not going to be at a bio and Duncan Robinson level, like, they're not symbiotic, but where do they stand? Because that feels like something that might be able to work for them. Like, am I behind on, am I missing out on something here? No, I, I mean, maybe my memory's off. You know, I, I, I did, like, I saw I watched a lot of Philly this year. I covered them for a bit, and then I had some other writing opportunities come up, so I stepped away from Liberty Ballers for about six months. I didn't watch, so I didn't watch every game. I watched a lot of them, but still. Um, but it didn't seem like that was something they used a ton. Richardson was pretty good in handoffs. Um in his years in Miami, both in terms of eye test frequency and then synergy, backed it up with efficiency. Um, and then, like Embiid and Reddick were really good in the two-man game in the last couple of years as well. So I don't, I just don't think they use it a ton um, for whatever reason. I think they want more of some pick and roll stuff with Tobias Harris and Al Horford as screeners, um, and just maybe never really adjusted to a new dynamic in ball in um, in the DHOs because you know. Richardson's more of a guy who was a little more slashing to him off the DHOs, whereas Reddick was a guy who was pretty much always going to quick trigger or, fire, or hit the rolling and beat if both defenders sold out to contain the jumper. Um, but it definitely doesn't seem like it's a part of uh, the as much of an as much a part of the offense as it should have been this year to kind of you know help help guide Richardson for some of his struggles and Philadelphia's general struggles offensively throughout most of the year. Yeah. Well, I think you know, after talking about all these series, I think we stand on the same side of the ledger. I think we're going chalk, it sounds like, um, is going how we view these things turning out. But also, hey, what did you think about Tobias Harris's first half um, against the Raptors? Because he was super good in the pick and roll. I thought he had a, a really good first half when he was being guarded by Powell before that game turned into bench versus bench. Yeah, that, that I thought was his best game in the bubble like by far. Um, you know, he he had been very much a volume scorer in the first six games, um, scoring a lot, but getting up a ton of shots and not getting the foul line much. I think I tweeted after one of the games his numbers through the bubble and they were pretty ugly um, in terms of efficiency. But yeah, he was really good there. Like he was decisive. He was good in pick and rolls. He, I think kind of the one that sticks out is when he, he kind of got Marcus all with that little hesitation and um, and Bede rolled hard enough to bring Lowry in from the weak side and the Raptors are kind of frozen and. Harris got an and one, or not an and one, just a bucket at the rim pretty pretty smoothly. Um, yeah, that really decided, he was really decisive attacking off the catch in one play. I think he had a dunk or someone from the right corner. Um, was good, to, you know, attacking missed messages in the post a couple times he had that. 
Um, so yeah, I thought that was a really, really good showing from him. Um, 13 shots, six, six free throws, or excuse me, eight free throws in that game, um, which is a much better balance than he's had all year in terms of free throws versus field goal attempts. So yeah, I was really impressed with that. I thought that was definitely his best showing. And um, if the Sixers can have a chance to, to upset Boston, they're going to need more of that Tobias Harris offensively. Yeah. Well, as I said, it sounds like we're we're going chalk just on the, I guess, where these conversations have been leading. But Jackson, feels like we hit on a lot of important things. And thank you very much for lending your, your intelligence and your eye for especially defense. I think you have a really great read on defense, especially when we're talking about how guards play, because I think that is one of the most uh, misrepresented things. I think a lot of people don't know how to rate that aspect of the game. So Thank you for lending your your intelligence and your eye for that to the podcast. And man, I've really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you for doing this with me. Yeah, of course. Likewise, I appreciate the being insightful back and forth rather than just you know sometimes I go on podcasts. Not that it's bad, but it's more of just me me talking. But I, I like it more when it's a back and forth and two two people talking about basketball and know what they're you know what they're discussing. So yeah, I'm looking forward to these series. Um, even if some of them aren't super fun, it'll be cool to see kind of how they're they're predictive or indicative of the next round because the next round is going to be really, really fun in the the East. I think we're going to have a lot of, a lot of fun stuff to talk about um, in that that kind of semifinal round. Um, I'm excited to see what we can, what we can glean from the first round about that, that second round. Yeah. I think that's really the one to look out for. And as far as the back and forth, I only started doing this podcast under the guise of me, me, me. So I couldn't help but <laughs> respond to anything you said. But the floor is yours, man. Is there anything you want to shout out or plug or promote? And then uh, we'll get out of here. Uh, I had a piece about Mikhail Bridges on Dime Up Rocks a few days ago. Um, you can just search Mikhail Bridges, my name, and then Dime Up Rocks or something. And you'll find it. Um, that's all I really got going. I think we'll have a, an observations piece on Liberty Ballers, kind of what I noticed from the bubble games for the Sixers, hopefully before um, their series starts in a couple of days. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of all, all I got working right now on my end in terms of future content or recent content. Okay. Well, also, listener. Yes, this is me speaking. Hi, listener. I cannot co-sign that Mikhail Bridges piece enough. It was excellent. Jackson, it was super good. So I, I suggest you go read it, listener. But Jackson, I'd like to thank you once more for coming on, man. Yeah, of course. I appreciate this. I uh, hope you get to talk more Raptors ball for a while this while this year, however long it goes. I wouldn't, wouldn't mind seeing them make another deep run. They've been quite, quite good this year again. Yeah, most fun I've had watching and covering a team, for sure. They're, they're definitely super fun. But, listener, that's it for you. We're out of here. Thanks for listening. Whether you're getting into this in the morning or at night, have a blessed day and goodbye. The Home Depot's Holiday Gift Center has great gifts for any doer on your list and the best prices of the year just for you. On top-rated brands like DeWalt, Ryobi, Milwaukee, and Makita. Right now, the DeWalt Atomic Drill and Impact Combo Kit is just $149, normally $229. Order online for easy in-store pickup or delivery. The Holiday Gift Center, in-store and online. And Black Friday prices now through December. Gift giving improved. From the Home Depot, how doers get more done. U.S. only, Wasp last. See store for details.